All right, as the kiddos head to Children's Church, let's take our Bibles and turn to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. We're going to start there this morning. We're eventually going to get ourselves over to Psalm chapter 15, which is our primary text for today. But as you're turning to James chapter 2, let me ask you a question. And here it is. What is the difference between you and your unbelieving neighbor or your unbelieving coworker or your unbelieving family member? Well, you might say, you know, the difference is that we believe different things. And that's perhaps a good start for sure, but, but that answer alone is going to fall short with God. You see, what we believe is absolutely vital. It's absolutely important. It is foundational. But how we practice what we believe matters more to God. You see, words and beliefs are empty when there is no substance behind them. We, we must actually practice what we preach. Because godly character matters. You see, it's the action part of our belief system that matters to God. And I think we can go as far as to say that godly character authenticates that we are a true believer. Now, we know that good works doesn't save anyone, right? But good works, godly character, should be the natural outflow of the life of a true follower of Jesus Christ. And this is at the heart of what we want to consider today as we look at Psalm 15, But first, we need to do some homework, and that's why I've asked you to turn to James chapter 2. So James chapter 2, I'm going to begin reading at verse 14, and all of this is going to make a whole lot more sense after we get through this section of James chapter 2. Beginning at verse 14, what use is it, my brethren, if someone has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God." You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now, all of this could be very, very confusing if we didn't compare Scripture with Scripture, right? James cannot be saying here that performing good works is a part of our salvation because that would directly conflict with so many other passages of Scripture, like Romans 3.20, which says, because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Romans 3.28 says, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from 
works of the law. Galatians 2.16, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. So what in the world is James saying here in this section of Scripture? Well, what he's saying is there is such a thing as a dead faith. It's a lifeless faith that doesn't produce righteous living. It's a so-called belief that's purely intellectual, and it hasn't affected the heart. It's a man-induced faith that is void of the Spirit of God. Instead, what James is saying here is what we do authenticates our faith. Faith without works is a dead faith. It's the same kind of faith that the demons have, James says. They know intellectually, but they don't know experientially. And so true, genuine faith produces righteous living. So now that we hopefully have that settled, let's turn our attention to Psalm chapter 15. So let's go over to Psalm chapter 15. Now before I read this, we need to know that this is a psalm of David. David wrote about half of the psalms. So there's 150 psalms in the Psalter, and David wrote about half of them. It strategically follows Psalm 14 And Psalm 14 is all about the absolute depravity of man. Man at his worst. Man mired in sin and the result of sin. Look across the page to Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Well, this is as bad as it gets, right? This is as bad as it gets, and this is the reason that we all need a Savior. That was us before God extended His grace to us through faith in Jesus Christ. Most of this, by the way, is repeated in Romans chapter 3. So if what we just read seems and sounds familiar, that has been reproduced by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3. And so as we'll see here in a moment when we read Psalm 15, the authenticity of our faith produces something. Okay, you follow me? The authenticity of our faith produces something. The unbeliever that David describes here in Psalm 14 ultimately produces unrighteousness. But as we'll see here in Psalm 15, it's just the opposite. An authentic believer will produce righteousness. And that's what Psalm 15 is all about. So look at Psalm 15, beginning with verse 1. Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. 
He does not slander with his tongue. He does not do evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, and whose eyes are reprobate as despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt, and he does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken." Well, I have always enjoyed writing, uh, so much so that almost all of my electives in high school were in English and literature and journalism. Even as a high schooler, I adopted a, an appetite for, for writing. I served as the features editor for our school's student newspaper, which meant that each month I would write an article that featured an interesting story about a special person or a special event associated with our school. As an adult, I have written a hundred or more articles over the years, some of which have been published by Christian magazines or Christian websites. One day, I hope to write a couple of books for the purpose of encouraging other believers. I mention all that because here in Psalm 15, we find this wonderful literary tool called coupling. Coupling. I learned about it in my journalism classes. Coupling is exactly as it sounds. It's when an author intentionally couples together two similar ways of saying something for emphasis. And so here in Psalm 15, we find in verse 1 that David is asking two questions, and then in verses 2 through 5, he provides six answers to those questions in couplet form. So let's begin this morning as we look at this psalm. We want to investigate these two questions. He says again, O Lord, verse 1, O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? David begins here, in essence, by asking, how do you know who God's people are? How do you know who God's people are? In other words, who are those that are truly close with God? Those who abide in his tent and dwell on his holy hill. Now, you remember that it was David who... uh, was uh, the father of Solomon. And so it was Solomon who built the temple. So he's not referring to the temple here, but he's referring here to the Lord's tabernacle, which was the place that the people met with God. It was a tent. It was a tent so that it could be moved around as the people moved. It housed the Ark of the Covenant, an altar, a table, a candlestick, a a whole host of uh, a number of other things. And eventually that tent then later the temple would be built on God's holy hill, which was referred to as Mount Zion. And so David is thinking of people who are very familiar with those places, the the tabernacle and God's holy hill in Jerusalem. They abide there in their hearts. They dwell there because they're followers of the one true living God. They know God experientially. They know him intimately. And so David asks these questions as to who will dwell with the Lord, or who knows the Lord. And notice here that he's asking the Lord himself. He begins, O Lord, who may abide in your tent, who may dwell on your holy hill. What we have to follow then are the answers to David's questions. In other words, what kind of people know the Lord? What are they like? What do they do? How do they think? How do they interact with others? And so David asks the Lord what these people are like. 
What characterizes a person who knows God? And because David knew God and had walked with God for many years, he provides six answers to his own questions in couplet form, and it's these answers that we want to examine today. So if you're taking notes, there are six answers. The first answer has to do with their character, and we see that here in verse 2. He who walks with integrity and works righteousness. So those who, who know God live a life of integrity, and their life is filled with righteousness. This won't come as a surprise to anyone, but there have been, and you could tell stories as well, there have been some people that I've known in my lifetime that have called themselves a Christian that have really done damage to the name of Christ. And I could give you a lot of examples. One that sticks out in my mind was years and years ago when I was working in government, everyone knew that I was a Christian because I told them. I wanted the accountability that that would bring in my life. So I wasn't shy about my faith. I worked with a ton of unbelievers, but I wanted them to know that I answered to the Lord. I answered to Jesus Christ. He is my Savior. Now let me just encourage you not to be a closet Christian. Okay? People should know that you're a believer. People that you work with, people in your family, people in your neighborhood, they should know that you are a Christian. But let me say this, and this is stating the obvious here, don't tell anyone you're a Christian if you're not going to live like it. And hence my story. So people that I worked with knew that I was a Christian. They knew that I was a former pastor and that my heart's desire was to one day get back into the ministry. They knew I was an active part of my local church. They knew that I was an elder in my church. But there was this other guy who also said he was a Christian. But this guy's life was an absolute mess. He was a nice guy. I liked him. We had some good talks over the years. But, but there were stories of him getting drunk and swearing like a sailor, him acting out in front of others. His actions and my actions were very, very different. I wasn't in any way a perfect testimony, but his life and my life were noticeably different. And that caused a a, a ripple with the people that knew that I said I was a Christian and he said that he was a Christian. It was confusing. Well, is this what a Christian looks like or is this what a Christian looks like? And that guy caused me so much consternation and frustration when I tried to witness to people that I worked with for years, this guy was saying similar things, but his life didn't exhibit the life of a Christian. You see, integrity is important. And this is what David is speaking of here. Integrity is defined as being morally upright, doing the right thing. And I might add a nuance to that definition. Integrity is doing the right thing whether someone is watching or not. For the Christian, it means living a life of obedience to the commands of God. Are we going to be perfect? No. And, and look, we say this all the time. I feel like that's the disclaimer that we have to say. I'm not perfect. You're not per-. We understand that, right? We all get that. We know ourselves. We know we're not perfect. We know that we sin. We struggle with sin. There's not a person in the room today that is above 
sinning. We aren't going to be glorified until we one day are with Jesus Christ forever in glory. And so we all struggle with this. We all understand that, right? But I give the disclaimer each and every time I speak about this because I want you to know that I don't claim to be perfect, and I know you want me to know that you don't claim to be perfect either. So we all struggle with these things. But, but, we are called as Christians to live a life of obedience to the commands of God. True? Right? We don't get off the hook because we're a sinner. Well, you think God's buying that? Oh God, I'm a sinner, so therefore the bar is low. No, the bar is high because we've been saved by God's grace through faith in Christ And we have expectations. We have expectations. Charles Spurgeon once said, A man's life is always more forcible than his speech. When men act, when men take stock of him, they reckon his deeds as dollars and his words as pennies. And so, what David is saying here in Psalm 15 is those who know God live a life of integrity, they live a righteous life. Again, not a perfect life. But that's the tenor of who they are. And it plays out in how they live. The Apostle John says the same thing in 1 John chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. He says, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one has been born of God who has been born of God practices sin because his seed remains in him and he cannot sin continually because he has been born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother or sister. Jesus said in Matthew 7, you will know them by their fruits. Right? Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so then you will know them by their fruits. But I thought Jesus said, we shouldn't judge others or we'll be judged. Remember that? Judge not, lest you be judged. Well, what does that mean? Well, he's speaking there of hypocritical judgment, those who try to set a standard for someone else that they're not willing to follow. But we make judgments all the time. In fact, Jesus is saying you can't help but make judgments as it relates to the lives of other people because you'll know them by their fruits. You'll know them by how they live. You'll know them by how they walk with God how they talk, how they act, right? So moving on here, and that's all foundational, moving on, David's second answer has to do with their speech. Look at the end of verse 2. And speaks truth in his heart, and he does not slander with his tongue. So these couplets are not perfectly aligned by the verse Uh, distinctions here. Some go from one verse to the other, but that is the couplet. As those who know God, we are to reflect his character in what we say. 
Not just in what we do, but in what we say. In other words, David says that we are to speak his truth to others. And I'm just going to say it. I'm not a big fan of social media. I'm not. I'm interacting less and less on it. But every blue moon, I'll scroll through some of the comments on Facebook or Twitter, and I am appalled at what people say, many of whom claim to be Christians. They hide behind their keyboards or their cell phones, and they gossip, and they slander others as if it's okay in the eyes of God. And let me just say, if you're on Twitter, it's way worse than Facebook. Twitter is way worse than Facebook. I'm not on TikTok. I'm not on Instagram. I don't even know what those things are. I look at social media as a drug. So follow me. Drugs can be good and helpful, or you can misuse them or even get addicted to them. Let me just say this. I'll state the obvious. There are a whole lot more profitable ways to use your time than being on social media. And let me encourage you to use your comments and your interactions on social media in the same way you would if God were in the room with you. Because he is. He is. A few years back, I wrote an article for our Grace Life Gazette that I entitled, God is on Facebook. Do you remember that? I listed three questions that you should ask yourself before posting on any of these social media outlets, okay? And here they are. Soak them in. Number one, is my interaction wise and or edifying? Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Ephesians 5, 15 through 17, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Proverbs 17, 27 and 28 says, He who restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips... He is considered prudent. So we ask the question, is is my interaction wise and or edifying? And this this can be with our speech. This can be in what we write on social media. These are just good questions. Think before you talk. Think before you talk. Is my interaction wise? Is it edifying? And if it isn't, then why are you doing it? I thought you're supposed to be a Christian. Second question. In that article, is God on Facebook? The answer is yes. Number two, is my interaction a product of a pure heart? Is my interaction a product of a pure heart? Proverbs 16 and verse 2 says, All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. Psalm 26 and verse 2, Examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my mind and my heart. Proverbs 4.23, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from, for from it flows the springs of life. Psalm 19 and verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So is my interaction wise? Is it edifying? 
Is my interaction a product of a pure heart? And then third, the third question is, is my interaction glorifying to God? Because isn't that what we're to be about? Isn't that what our mission is in, the, in this life? Not to try to get our pound of flesh with others, but to glorify God in everything we do, including what we say, including what we post on social media? 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, what? Do all to the glory of God. Do we even think about it? Do we wake up each and every morning and think, you know, Lord, I want to glorify you today. Yes, we think about it when we come to church. We think about we're going to worship the Lord in song today. And so we all sing out. Our voices all reverberate against the walls of this auditorium, and we sing out, and we want to glorify God. We want to worship God. But what about throughout the week? Every day we're to do everything to the glory of God, even the mundane things like eating or drinking, interacting on social media, talking with our friends. Colossians 3.17 says, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Looking back at James' epistle, he addresses the issue of the tongue. James chapter 1 and verse 26 says, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this person's religion is worthless. Why? Because what he does and what he says doesn't match up with who he claims to be. Jesus said in Matthew 15, he says, what you say reflects what's in your heart. David goes on to say that the one who knows God doesn't slander with his tongue. Gossip and slander are poisonous. I, I, I watched, I worked for 11 years in, 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 in governments for the state of Illinois. I mention it a lot. It's my only sphere of reference outside of the ministry. I learned a lot. I learned a lot. I learned how poisonous gossip and slander can be in the workplace. I mean, unbelievable. And the, and, and the speed at which this travels will knock you off your chair. It is unbelievable. Somebody could say something about someone. You know the telephone game, how things continue to move down the line? It could be something very innocuous, very simple that happened, and all of a sudden we have a guy way back in the back of the building that passed out and died. And all he did was trip over a cord on the floor. I mean, it is unbelievable how things can be distributed with the mouth. This was before personal computers. This is before social media. This is before email. This is before uh, texting and all these other things. That's just with the mouth. That's how fast things could travel in a building that was huge with a thousand people that worked in it. You know that gossip and slander are poisonous, and that's why people do it. That's why people do it, but not those who are righteous. They bridle the tongue. Go with me back to James chapter 3. And one of the things that I like about James, the book of James, is because it speaks about things that nowhere else in the Bible does it speak about. Oh, there'll be mentions, but not in this sort of detail. So if you go back to James chapter 3 and look at verse 1, 
By the way, the heading in my Bible says the untamable tongue. The untamable tongue. Look at verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body as well. Now if we put the bits into the horse's mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds and are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds or reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. I want you to think about this, verse 9. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs, nor can salt produce fresh? So the psalmist is saying, David is saying, look, and he gets it because he got himself into a lot of trouble in his life, right? We, we know the story of David, and it's not just the one instance where he, he committed adultery with Bathsheba and killed her husband and all that went with that. I mean, he had ups and downs throughout his entire life. He's an expert on many of these things, and so he writes about it. So no one is perfect in this, as I've said, but a sure sign of carnality is if gossip and slander is a regular part of your life. It doesn't equate. It doesn't fit. Look, we are all big mouths, right? All of us are big mouths. We all talk way too much. Way too much. We say the wrong things at the wrong times to the wrong people. We talk too much. And we use social media way too much. Answer number three, as he moves on, he, he wants to talk with, about relationships. So answer number three has to do with their relationships, their relationships. He says, at, at the second part of verse three, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. This is, this is nothing profound, and I'm sure most of you have either said this or would agree with what I'm about to say. But I just told Kathy the other day, I said, honey, you know I love people. I do. With all of my heart, I love people. I wouldn't be in the ministry if I didn't love people. But people drive me crazy sometimes. People drive me crazy. You know what I'm talking about. They drive us absolutely insane sometimes. 
And let's not be naive. There are some people who may even want to seek to do us harm. But David reminds us here that the Christian is never to do evil to his neighbor or to take up a reproach against a friend. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? What did he say? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Wouldn't you love to just plaster that all over the world today? There is so much fighting and backbiting between countries, between people, between you name it, in every sphere of life. Things aren't getting better. True? I mean, honestly. Honestly. And and I'm not going to try to act like that people back in my earlier generation were not depraved. Look, we're all depraved. Right? We're all depraved. It was more masked back then. There was a basic sense of morality in my neighborhood by the way if i acted up the other neighbors had the full authority of my parents to whoop me or to call me out right is a different era of time oh pastor dave you're living in the past i wish i could in many ways but i'm not and neither are you so we're living in the in the current era of time that we're in And I would have never in my wildest dreams ever thought we would get to this place as a kid who grew up in the 60s and the early 70s. I would have never thought that our country would get to where it is right now. It's amazing to me. But it's just depravity playing itself out in real time. The Christian life can be very messy because there's people involved, right? But the one who is a child of God, the one who knows God, handles himself or herself different than the world. Even when people come at us. Even when people come at us. So if you would, turn with me to Romans chapter 12. These, I hope today, are good reminders for us. Romans chapter 12. 12. So Romans chapter 12, beginning with verse 17. So things aren't getting better. Things are declining at a rapid pace. All these things that we've talked about today are realities. What does Paul say? Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy's hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will, reap, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so David is talking about those who want to do things 
wrong and inappropriately that would affect us, but we're never to repay evil with evil, but always to repay evil with good. We're not to do evil to our neighbor. We're not to take up a reproach against a friend. This should be so obvious for us as Christians. Which takes us to the fourth answer. The fourth answer has to do with their honor. And we see this in the first part of verse 4. In whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. In other words, the one who knows God, the one who is walking with God, has some discernment. They can separate truth from error. They don't let their emotions affect their judgment. They can tell the difference between an unprincipled reprobate and someone who fears the Lord. Answer number five has to do with their promises. Notice at the end of verse four, he swears to his own hurt and does not change. Now, Scripture, scripture tells us that we need to be careful about swearing oaths, right? We we understand that. Instead, we're just to let our yes be yes and our no be no, right? Straight talk Christians, right? Our yes is yes, our no is no. In other words, if a man or a woman who knows God makes a promise, they should keep it. And let me just say, parents, um, you can lose credibility very, very quickly with your kids if you promise them something and you don't carry through with it. They'll remember that. Now, they have no power to make it happen but they'll remember that. Mom and dad say things, but they don't follow through. So even it, be careful what you say, be careful what you promise, right? Because if you promise it, you got to carry through with it. We're to let our yes be yes and our no be no. We're to keep our promises. Even if that promise uh, to do something causes a burden or a personal hurt to carry it out. God's people are like him. That's the whole point of this psalm. We're to be like him. He is the great promise keeper, and we are to be promise keepers as well. And that brings us to the final answer here in verse 5. And answer number 6 has to do with their money. Again, we're looking at those who know God, who experientially know God. What's their life look like? Well, Answer number six has to do with how they use their money. Verse five, he does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. Now, you know there are restrictions in the law as to charging interest to a person when you loan them money. There are all kinds of regulations about all kinds of things. So uh, that was all covered in the law. Well, the law is no longer in effect for us today, but there's a lot of New Testament principles about money and how we're to use our money for the glory of God. But here's the main principle. If we were to kind of put all of those exhortations together, the main principle is that God is the owner of all things. God owns it all. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the wealth in every mine. He is the owner of all things, and we are simply stewards of what he has entrusted to us. So we're, we're managers. We're stewards. God has blessed some of us with wealth or with a lot of possessions or with things that um, others may not have. 
He's blessed us in a, a very special way. But we're just managers. We're just stewards of what He's entrusted to us. Money comes, money goes. Possessions come, possessions go. Have you ever known anybody who uh, had a fire at their house? Devastating. I had a friend who left for work and was called a couple hours after he left uh, home to go to work, and his house had caught on fire and it burned to the ground. Everything they owned became ashes. And I've often thought about that. Like, what, what if our house was on fire and we could go in and save whatever we could, we had just a short period of time, what would we save? Have you ever asked yourself these questions, put yourself in these scenarios? What will we, we, we have 30 seconds, we have a minute to go in to the home and to get out what we, now I know what Kathy would do. She would go right for all the pictures. Uh, those are all in the same spot, in the same room. I think she'd run through a blaze to get those things. I do, I think she would come through and just run through and scream, I'm going to get those pictures. Jump through the window. I mean, I think that's what she would do. I, I've thought about it. I don't know what I'd do. I mean, I, all of my sermons that I've preached and put thousands and thousands of hours of time into, um, they're all here at the church in notebooks. My Bible, I got Bibles at the church. I, I don't know what I would grab. Have you ever thought about this? I mean, certainly, if there was anybody in the house, no matter who it was, those are our priorities, right? We'd go in and get them out. But possessions, I don't know. I, I've not, and I'd say this kind of knocking on wood because I've never been put in the position, but I've never really lived for possessions. I mean, granted, God's blessed me most of my life, so I haven't had to want for things. But we don't live an extravagant lifestyle. You don't live an extravagant lifestyle. We, we all are on a budget. We all live within our means. But what we do with what we have speaks a lot about who we are. What we do with what we have speaks a lot about who we are. So we should be generous, right? This principle that God is the owner of all things. We're simply stewards as to what he's entrusted to us. We're not to live for the accumulation of money or possessions. Instead, we're to be generous with what God has given. That's the whole idea here of putting our money out to help somebody, but not trying to gain from it. Not because we can charge 20% interest and we can have a windfall of money as a result. That's not a good motive. So he's saying that we would even lend out our money with no interest because our desire is to be generous. Our desire is to help. Maybe we can't give them all of it, but maybe we can give it to them for a short period of time so they can pay us back, but we won't charge them interest. I think that says something about our heart or our desire. But notice here how David closes out this psalm. He closes it out with a promise. He says here at the end of verse 5, he who does these things will never be shaken. He who does these things will never be shaken. Being gracious, honoring the Lord with our words and actions, it's a testament 
to the life-changing power of the Spirit of God. And let me just say this, and I've told my kids this their whole life. It's never wrong to do right. It's never wrong to do the right thing. Just do the right thing before the Lord. He'll take care of the rest. We put so much stock in this life. One day we will all stand before Jesus Christ. We'll give an account for how we lived our life. Just do the right thing. Have integrity. Show character. Match up who we say we are with what we do. He who does these things will never be shaken. And he may be thinking futuristically here because, you know, if we do the right thing, we live a life of integrity before the Lord. We actually live out who we say we are in Jesus Christ. We may have some issues in this life, but we'll never be shaken because we'll have this firm foundation as we stand before Christ. I guess the big question, and and obviously a a sermon without any application isn't a good sermon. (laughs) I mean, this has been an application from start to finish today. But I think we got to ask ourselves a question. Do we know God in the way that David describes? Do we know God that way? This is why faith and repentance go together when we trust in Christ. Because repentance is what? It's a change of mind that results in a change of action. So it's a change of mind about who God is, who we are as sinners, and it results in a change in how we live. It's an about face, right? It's a Psalm 14 (laughs) to Psalm 15. That's where we were. Psalm 14. This is where we are now. Psalm 15. Does what you do match up with what you say? And that is our heart's desire. You know, we could look around the room and go, eh, he's not doing so good with that. Yeah, she struggles. You know, this isn't about he or she. This is about me, you. Look at our own lives. Examine our own lives. I don't have time to examine your life unless you need me to help you. But I don't have, I mean, I got enough to worry about with myself. And so do you. So do you. Slap on the wrist by David. Appreciate it. I'm thinking about it all week. Hopefully it's encouraged you today to think about your own life in a special way. Look, we all have room for improvement, right? And this is what the body of Christ is supposed to be helpful for, is to help one another along the way in these struggles that we have. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so grateful for your love to us. We're so grateful for uh, all that you are and Um, have done for us through the Lord Jesus. Thank you for each and every one who are here today. As we turn our attention now to the Lord's Supper, we want to 
uh, set aside all of the different cares and concerns of this life and concentrate on this amazing gift that we've received from Jesus. The gift of salvation where he came to this earth to die in the place of sinners. All who would repent of their sin and place their faith and trust in him. And so Lord, help us today. Help us to to, uh, concentrate and be thankful for what it is that Jesus has done for us. Because this is our access to you is through Christ and his righteousness. We thank you for all that we've learned today, all that we've been challenged with. May we take it to heart. May we be encouraged by it, strengthened by it. And may we put it into practice. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.